This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. On the fields of Troy, a fallen soldier pleaded with Achilles, the great hero of all the Greeks, to spare his life. According to Homer, Achilles replied, Do you not see what a man I am, how huge, how splendid, and born of a great father and the mother who bore me immortal? Yet even I have also my death and strong destiny, and there shall be a dawn or an afternoon or a noontide when some man in the fighting will take the life from me also either with a spear cast or an an arrow flown from the bowstring. With that, Achilles killed him. Heroes have special attributes, but not necessarily humility or compassion. (coughs) How did the Greeks define their heroes? What place did the hero have in classical society, in Renaissance and in Romantic times? And what do the modern ideas of heroism owe to the heroes of the Golden Age? With me to discuss heroism in Western culture is Angie Hobbs, lecturer in philosophy at the University of Warwick and author of Plato and the Hero, A.C. Grayling, reader in philosophy at Birkbeck College, University of London, and Paul Cartledge, professor of Greek history at the University of Cambridge. Angie Hobbs. Nearly missed my first question there. Where does the word hero come from, and when does the notion of the hero first appear? Well, we first see it in Homer, where the word heros uh, applies to, usually applies to warriors of great abilities which are of use to their community. So they are usually men of, of extraordinary courage and strength and skill at fighting. It can also be applied to, more generally, to other characters such as bards and messengers even. Now, after Homer, we start to see other layers of meaning accruing to this general word heros. In Hesiod, for instance, uh, heroes refer to a specific age, uh, the age which comes after gods and daimons and before mortals. It's a specific type of being in a a chronological uh, order of being. When we get to the lyric poet Pindar in the 5th century BC, uh, Heros seems to take on a, a quasi-technical meaning uh, that you have one mortal parent and one divine parent. And then this notion of the hero as an object of worship uh, takes on the notion of a, a local deity, perhaps even the patron of a local tribe. Well, you've gone through several centuries in uh, three excellent, brilliant paragraphs. But if we can just go back to uh, uh, back to one or two things. So a hero has to have courage, but it's courage in a public sense, in a great cause, uh, a cause to do with something far larger than himself. So courage isn't a sufficient uh, thing for a hero to have. No, courage is a, is a virtue. And we're uh, talking about yes. hymns for a long time now, aren't we, until we get uh, deep into the present. Yes, courage is a virtue and heroism isn't necessarily a virtue. Uh, in in the, the Greek text we're talking about, uh, heroism almost always involves this notion of courage, but it, it's more than just that. It's You have got to be regarded as a hero by your community or at least a subsection of your community. You have to be of value to your community. Now, that doesn't mean to say that your motivation has to be particularly altruistic. The hero in Homer, for instance, is often motivated by a, a, a lust for glory, a desire for revenge, and so on. That doesn't seem to matter for the ancient Greeks, what the motivation was. It's whether you were of use to the community. Although Homer has uh, uh, described one poet as hero, we're still, the whole thing at this stage is still deeply grounded in, in war, 
in performance, individual performance on the battlefield. Is that right? Uh, largely, yes, that's true, yes. And as you said, Achilles is the, the, the warrior hero par excellence. Well, can you tell us something about Achilles? Yes, well, he, he's a fascinating uh, hero. He's, he's a good example of somebody who has one divine and one mortal parent. His mother is Thetis, a sea goddess, um, and he has a mortal father. He was at, Does he have any historical basis whatsoever, Achilles? Well, that, that I'm sure Paul can tell you more about later. I mean, I like to think so. I mean, the, the ancient Greeks like to think so. Alexander the Great worshipped Achilles as, as a real person as well as a mythical figure. Uh, it would be nice to think that there was uh, a warrior at Troy who, who had some resemblance to Achilles. But of course, no, he's the whole legend is embellished. Now, why he's so fascinating is that Achilles... Uh, symbolizes a lot of the tensions that exist within the hero figure in Homer and in ancient Greece generally. He, yes, he's an extraordinarily brave, a skillful fighter, very fast, of course, but also his, his aggression can sometimes tip over into acts of savagery, which, which are criticized even in the Iliad itself. And he can be dangerous even within the context of the Iliad. And, of course, his own life is rather isolated and lonely. And also he, he's fascinating because he, he's more aware than any of the other heroes of what it means to be a hero, what the heroic life entails. That speech implies that, doesn't it? That's, that's yeah. right. And his, his goddess mother tells him that he has two choices which have been given him by the gods. Either he can be a hero, win glory and die young, or he can return to his native land of fear um, and live to a ripe old age, but without glory. And he absolutely chooses glory, and he knows it's going to mean his early death. And he knows that when his, his great friend Patroclus is killed, partly through Achilles' own fault, and Achilles goes back into the battle to avenge Patroclus, he knows quite consciously that, that this means that he is going to die soon. So we can, at this stage, we can, we can, we can as a beginning point for this program, we say Achilles is a useful archetype of one sort of hero. Yes. He's a fantastic warrior, quite extraordinary. Uh, he's very individual. He, he's also a bit of a threat to his own side because of his sulks and his temperament and his Absolutely, temper yeah. and his own inner violence. And so he's a clouded romantic figure as well. Yes, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So there's that mm. going on. Mm. The other great Greek hero who comes out of Homer, Antony Grayling, is Odysseus, uh, the cunning, the wily. Can you, can you do Odysseus for us? <laughs> yes, he, he was an admired figure because he was uh, uh, so good at being um, deceitful and uh, sly and uh, finding ways of manipulating people in situations. Um, he wasn't swift of foot as Achilles was. He wasn't a great uh, fighter as a uh, uh, Hector was, uh, but but he had this um, this this kind of uh, practical wisdom, um, which enabled him to deal with difficult situations and make suggestions that got people out of tight corners, and that was tremendously putting his soldiers too. under sheep, for instance. That's exactly right. Yes, in in fact, of course, his his story comes uh, a little bit later. When when you when you look at the Odyssey, you see him having to cope with. Uh, all sorts of uh, perils and, and difficulties by being very smart and second-guessing them, you know, having himself strapped to the mast after plugging his uh, his sailor's ears with wax so that he could hear the song of the sirens and so on. So he, he was... He and was ignore a very... the songs. The thing was to, <laughs> not just to hear it, it was to ignore it. That was the point. Well, try to, yes. <laughs> so so he, he, you know, he represents a, a kind of intellectual heroism which um, was also uh, admired, too. Um, Can you just bring the heroism out of that? You've described a cunning man, a wily man, a clever man, a sophisticated man in his dealings and escapes and evasions, but what would the Greeks say was heroic about that? 
I suppose the fact that he was able to confront with the, 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 the courage of intellect, if, if, if one could put it that way... Um, well, could, did they put it that way? Did they regard him as a hero in the same breath as Achilles, for instance? By, by, by strong implication, yes. No, I mean, not, not the same kind of hero. That, that's very, very no, important. No, in the same bracket, though. They could bracket them. In the heroes. same bracket, yeah. yes, because he, he faced difficulties uh, like uh, um, huge one-eyed monsters who were you know, threatening to eat him and, and his followers, uh, or uh, women who wanted to keep him forever and steal his, uh, his manhood and his soul away from him, or he went down into the underworld and had to confront all the difficulties there. And, and the weapons that he used were the weapons of cunning and, and thought and, and forethought. And, and that was very, very much admired. So it's an interesting alter alternative view of what it is to be somebody of heroic proportions. He's certainly a, a, a hero of the heroic age in that sense. There's a, st there's a sense in which, uh, going from there, from Homer to Pericles' great oration during the Peloponnesian War, Athens and Sparta, where he, he makes heroes of the whole of Athens, of the whole force. It is not an individual, it's a force and it's even a, a city force. Can you describe that? He democratizes heroism in a way, I suppose you could say. Could you? He does indeed, yes. It seems to me a tremendously important turning point, this, because at the end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War, so Thucydides tells us, uh, Pericles made what was a, a traditional oration over the dead. Now, if you look at, at, uh, at Homer, um, again, Homer would have thought that characters like uh, Dolon and Thersites and other low-born, uh, unpleasant characters could never attain heroic stature because they didn't have the right kind of pedigree, they didn't have the right sort of origins. I mean, Odysseus might not have been an Achilles, but at least he was very high-born. But Pericles makes everybody, any Athenian who had died in the cause uh, of Athens, a hero. He doesn't name anybody. There's not one named person in that oration. But he talks about all the fallen. And he even talks about their relatives at home bearing the, the, the grief and the difficulty that's resulted from it. And so he has, as you say, democratized heroism. And what this means is that a switch away from warrior virtues to civic virtues is in process of happening. And that uh, uh, report by Thucydides seems to capture that moment. It's a very important one. But it isn't a switch that is a defining switch in, in the sense that the, the, the Achillean idea of heroism dies. It becomes a parallel notion, doesn't it, rather than a displacing notion? It, it does, although I think in the end it displaces, because if you look at what else is happening in, in the culture of the time too, if you look at Aeschylus talking about uh, uh, the trial of Orestes at the end of the Aristia, uh, the, the, the Furies, the old gods, uh, whose task it was to avenge um, had been displaced by Athene calling a jury of the citizens of Athens together. And this is a, 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 a big switch, too, towards the civic. You look at Sophocles and his attitude towards war and, and how terrible war is, how little glory really attaches to it. You get a sense that there's a, a really big shift in attitude, away from the idea that it's egregious, I mean, the literal sense of that term, individuals who really count as heroes and who are really important in the hierarchy of virtue, to something which is demotic and, and civic. Paul Cartledge, can you distinguish between Spartan ideas of heroism around this time of the Peloponnesian War and Athenian ideas of heroism? It's a very good question because precisely Pericles in his funeral speech, as reported by Thucydides, draws attention to Sparta. And he, in fact, contrasts what he takes to be Athenian democratic heroism with Sparta. And he accuses the Spartans' courage of being merely manufactured. 
we might say, brainwashed. And it's something like the old Cold War ideology in the 20th century where what they do over there behind the Iron Curtain, well, that's just terrible, and what we do is somehow admirable. And it's something like that sort of spirit. And the problem is with Sparta, therefore, that um, we don't actually get a Spartan's own point of view. We have to infer what the Spartans thought about themselves. But we know what the Spartans did from their actions. We know about Thermopylae, for instance, which, which was a defeat but seen uh, by historians as emblematic of what would be a great victory. Funny you should mention Thermopylae. I think you've already had a, a little program on that because it was, of course, the signal, decisive contribution that the Spartans made in a way to, Western, to the Western tradition of heroism because they agreed to die collectively, though uh, heroically in the sense of futilely in the short term, but for the longer term they established that sort of notion that you don't give in and there is something greater than your own life and that is your corporate life and there's something even greater than your communal life and that's Greece, some sort of high notion which involves freedom in a way that being Greek is being free in a way that other countries just can't do it. Just to clear this up for, uh, for a lot of our listeners, we're talking exclusively about men still, aren't we? Is, is the idea of a woman being a hero in these times conceivable? It is conceivable, but it is um, literally paradoxical for a Greek because the Greek word for courage is manliness. In other words, by definition, there is something gendered about being courageous. And this goes back to what uh, Anthony was saying, really, about how, on the one hand, bravery is the defining character of the hero initially, but that gets modulated into more quieter virtues, more civic virtues. Well, a woman, because of her gender, unfortunately, can never fight and therefore can never demonstrate that kind of courage. But on the other hand, the sort of courage that's required to put up with the loss of a child or in some other way make a civic contribution you know, through religion, for example, that sort of courage is possible, but it's not valued in the same way. And just one last point, that um, in Herodotus, who is, of course, the main source for our knowledge of Thermopylae, there is one woman to whom he attributes the abstract virtue of manliness in a paradoxical way, and she just happens to be from his own hometown. <laughs> Her name is Artemisia, and she was, I suppose, in a sense, a queen, at any rate, a sole ruler. And like Boudicca, she took over from her late husband as queen. And Herodotus gives her a good write-up. So, in some sense, she was heroic, partly because she actually fought at a sea battle, the Battle of Salamis. Can, can I ask Paul, uh, uh, Melvin, about the Amazons and what the Greeks thought of them? Did they think they were fierce rather than, than brave? Um, it's a very good distinction, but of course they had other problems. Were they women or men? Because they were sort of between the two. They used men rather than men used them. They were set somewhere in the east, which of course is problematic, and uh, they produced children as and when they wanted and not when men wanted them. And, of course, they were, by definition, warriors. So in all these ways they are an antitype. And actually it's a very good example of the way the Greeks thought that's to say the way in which they envisaged their own values was in a crucial way by opposing and polarizing other sorts of groups, and the Amazons are one of them. 
Angie Hobbs, did Plato uh, redefine heroism? Did he? It, would you pick him out as someone who extended and developed the Homeric idea? Yes, absolutely, and in a very radical way. He, Plato certainly recognises that societies are still going to need martial uh, valour uh, and that kind of heroism. Even the ideally just state is always going to be open to the possibility of war. So that model of heroism continues in Plato. However, he wants to extend it. He wants to say that you don't have to fight on a battlefield to be heroic. You can endure hard, laborious thought, you can endure the risk of ridicule, contempt, even being put to death, as Socrates was. You can be a philosopher uh, and a hero. And he absolutely consciously writes up Socrates throughout his dialogues as an alternative model of the hero. Was this taken up at the time? I mean, of course, we have philosopher here on oh. my left here, Grayling, but I mean, Abs and, and this, philosophers yeah. since then have embraced this notion. <laughs> I mean, in society as a whole, was oh, it taken up at the time? Absolutely, it was taken up at the time, and as you might imagine, it was particularly taken up by, by philosophers. Uh, Aristotle's interesting here. Now, Aristotle... He continues the technical term hero as meaning of half-divine, half-mortal, but he also has a notion called megalopsukia, meaning greatness of soul, which is very similar to the kind of human heroism that we've been discussing. And Aristotle makes a distinction. He says there are two basic types of megalopsukia. One is a refusal to submit to dishonourable treatment, and he cites Achilles as an example of that, also Alcibiades. The other, he says, is a, a calm strong endurance of misfortune, of whatever life throws at you. And he uh, cites Socrates there. He could have easily have cited Odysseus. He clearly has Odysseus in mind. So in terms of what we were saying earlier, in terms of Achilles and Odysseus being set up uh, in the uh, Odyssey and the Iliad as two prototype heroes, Plato takes that notion on, allows the Odyssean type to be extended to philosophers, and, and that does get taken up. One, one moment, Paul. As we, uh, Anthony Grayling, as we crawl near our own times and get from the Romans to the Greeks, can you distinguish between Roman idea of heroism and the Greek idea? I think I, I can, yes, although there is a continuity and an important one. Uh, just before I mention it, I should point out that uh, the, 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 the contemporary philosopher's conception of heroism is that discretion is the better part of, <laughs> of that. <laughs> now, the, the direct continuity between, uh, between the conception that, that Angie's just been describing and the, the Roman view, uh, especially the early, the republican, austere, self-contained, self-mastered Roman view, is, is, of course, to be found in the Stoic tradition, which has captured this idea that Angie's been talking about of, uh, of the, the intellectual fortitude, the preparedness to endure, the preparedness to uh, stand up for your, your view uh, and to be uh, indifferent to what you can't control, to things that happen to you from outside and, uh, and which are the choices of others. Roman virtues which uh, 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 came back in the imperial times of the 19th century England, for, Britain, for instance. Indeed they did. That's indeed they did. far too far forward, uh, so. it, it is, but <laughs> in, the, in the case of, of, the, uh, of the Republican Romans, at any rate, this, this idea of being... Um, a strong individual in all these senses, not merely in the warrior sense, but, but being somebody who has this self-mastery that makes you uh, capable of uh, putting up with all sorts of um, difficulties, standing up for what's right, putting your hand into the fire to show your enemies that you're never going to be uh, likely to give away secrets about that how to get into... That was a literal example, wasn't it? Scrivola, was it? Yeah, yeah. Scarvelli, yes, yeah. Scarvelli. And uh, Horatius on the bridge. I mean, all these are, are uh, examples of how the warrior and the civic virtues uh, get mixed together into the 
idea of, of a hero of the Republic, of somebody who puts the uh, interests of the city and of his fellow citizens first and who will suffer anything in their in their cause. But to an outside, you wanted to come in earlier. Oh, I was Paul. just going to come back on that. Come on, Angie, and, um, and then really this is um, going back. And it's, uh, I was going to ask her how far she thought Socrates was a new kind of specifically intellectual hero, which might therefore provide some sort of ancestry for Carlyle's notion of uh, an intellectual hero. But, uh, Angie. Oh, well, absolutely. We'll come to, we'll come to that later. Mm. I completely take that sure. point. Can I uh, ask you, Paul, about the Roman triumph, uh, which seemed to celebrate the hero, but at the same time, from what one knows, someone whispering his hair in his, the, the, the ear yes. of the, you are mortal, you will die. So unless yes. he's coming in in triumph into Rome with all the uh, acclamations and the rewards of these great battles. Can you, just so how is the hero mm, figuring there? wasn't just any old someone whispering in uh, the triumphator's ear. It was a slave. And, of course, um, if you're uh, made a slave... Very often this is in war, and one of the functions of the triumph was to demonstrate Roman imperialism. It wasn't just the power of the individual triumpher, but of the whole Roman state and the Roman res publica. And your triumphator, to be granted a triumph, had to have killed, to have certified deaths of more than 5,000 of the enemy. Very Roman a sort of clinical, precise uh, cut-off figure uh, below. So if it's 4999, I'm sorry. But anyway, if you get this award, you're entitled to ride on a four-horse chariot. Your uh, cheeks are painted bright red. You are as near to Jupiter for this moment, this one day in your life, as it's possible ever to be. So you are almost a god. And, of course, the whole point about being a god is that you're immortal. And that explains why, remember, you are actually not a god. You may be looking like one, you may be thinking you are one, <laughs> but you're not. And then you parade up to the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline. And then, I'm afraid to say, you slaughter a select number of the more distinguished prisoners, ideally, of course, the commanding officer of the other uh, people. And then you are received into the temple, bedecked with um, all sorts of uh, regalia, um, to use a word that the Romans would, would not have used, because they didn't like kings very much. And that was, of course, Julius Caesar's problem. We might perhaps come back to him. So this was a quite extraordinary event, but it was as near as one could get to being a god, a hero, in that very precise so sense. So that's still celebrating the idea of the mortal and the immortal that we, we started with, really. But something else comes in during the time of the Roman Empire, the death of Christ, the idea of... Uh, the, the, somehow the idea of the hero has to be, because Christianity is taken over by the Roman Empire, has to be grafted on. Uh, the idea, the extant Greek and Roman classical idea. Now, how do you do it with a man who says, turn the other cheek, forgive everyone? How do they go about that? Yes, what's interesting here is that we know that the early Christian writers were very conscious of how, how could they portray Jesus. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we preach 
Christ crucified, and he knows that that idea of the passivity of, of suffering, the ideal of passive suffering, is going to be a problem. And he says that this, this ideal of Christ crucified, um, I think he says it's going to seem like foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. It's going to be very difficult to accept this notion that you shouldn't stand up for yourself and fight in, in a physical way. There's also evidence, and I think... Um, I think Origen against Celsus is an example. There's also evidence that there was debate at this period and shortly afterwards between Christians and non-Christian scholars about whether Jesus could be portrayed as a hero. And I think a non-Christian writes to Origen and says, well, surely uh, your Jesus is a hero in, in the sense of that hierarchy of being we, we talked about earlier. Uh, a, a hero is a, a being who's comes after gods and diamonds, but is, is greater than a, a mortal human. And he says, isn't, isn't your Jesus a hero in this scheme of things? And, and Origen replies, no, you've, you've not understood. Jesus is not just a hero. He really is God. So there is this debate. Can this model of Jesus be grafted on to the old Greek concepts? And the idea, the, the answer seems to be no, it, it actually can't. But isn't Anthony Groening, isn't there... Uh um, rather, rather a tentative take note from what Angie said. Isn't there a sense in which suffering becomes heroic through yes. the crucifixion? Yes. Mm. Yes, the, the saying is an important point. I was going to ask Angie about that. Mm. Uh, w whereas the classical conception had been of the hero as something active, that action is, is integral to it, passion becomes an, an heroic yes. virtue. And in fact, that's to some extent prefigured in the, uh, in the Socratic idea of somebody who's prepared to be um, put to death. Uh, mm -hmm. rather than escape because he believes what he does and wants to stick by his belief. So in that sense, passion becomes an heroic virtue. And that's one tremendously important thing. The second important thing, however, is not so much a question of the figure of Jesus himself, but um, people who uh, uh, have faith in him and uh, who, who therefore can, can suffer something that the... Uh, the, the, the heroes of classical times uh, got as a reward for their heroism, and that's apotheosis, that if you stick with the faith and you allow yourself to be martyred for it, you too will become something of a god, an angel. You'll get to heaven. Paul? I'm just going to add in a little sort of qualification about suffering not being part of an ancient Greek notion of heroism. Tragic heroes, uh, in some sense, um, Greek tragedy's function was education, as it was at any rate developed at Athens under the democracy. And there's a famous um, two-word saying, pathai mathos, you, you learn, learning, literally, through suffering. And, of course, knowledge is a form of... Uh, uh, heroism, if you can look upon the most awful things and not flinch. That's one notion which, for example, Nietzsche picked up on from uh, tragedy. So there is some sense in which it's possible to be passive and yet heroic. Can I in classical a bit, bit of casualty right, there. Right. Now, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Although another way of putting the point, I suppose, is to say that the tragic hero uh, is, um, you know, like like uh, uh, Orestes himself, for example, is the, the person who acts out. The, the, the tragic fate that the gods have ineluctably placed upon him. So, so I mean, you, you could argue that he still, still in, in some sense, has to do something in order for the tragedy to play itself out. Whereas in the case of, of um, say, a Jesus figure, there he is, helpless on the cross, nailed to it, can't do anything, and yet 
that is uh, an heroic moment. You could say by his death he achieved. I mean, the Christian would say that was an act. It wasn't merely a passive uh, suffering. It wasn't merely victimhood. But Well, in the West, can we move past the sort of Saxons, <laughs> old heroics, the, 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 the Vikings, uh, their own kind of uh, strip-back heroic, and the Norman French even to the Renaissance? You're shaking your head. You don't want to go that far that fast. <laughs> I've, got a, I've still got quite a lot to get through here, but we'll <laughs> pause for your thoughts. Well, no, I'm, I, it, it, I've always found it interesting that when, when Christianity wants to portray an image of, a, of an active martial Christian, it tends not to put Jesus in, in armour. It tends, later on, and we're getting nearer the Middle Ages here, it tends to put certain saints in armour. the St. Michael, St. George, Joan of Arc, and so on. So if you want this, the, the Achillean model of heroism in Christianity, it, it tends not to be through Jesus, but through certain, certain of the saints. How's the Renaissance uh, here, if we can keep using that term, which I think we can, Anthony Grayling, how's the Renaissance here, the Prince of Duke d'Urbino and all that, mm. have they absorbed the Christian as well as reaching back to the classical notion of here? Is there an attempt at fusion there? Well, uh, this is a difficult one. Uh, uh, the, the view that I take of it is that it's much more... Um, uh, uh, a mixed, uh, and, uh, as it were, precious alloy of, of uh, classical conceptions, both the pre-Periclean and post-Periclean ones. If you take an example of somebody who's regarded as a, as a Renaissance uh, hero, Federigo de Montefeltro, Duke of Urbino, whom you mentioned. Now, the thing about him was uh, he was a soldier, and he hired out his, uh, his little army to whoever was paying most at the time. But he also had Aristotle read to him at breakfast. And he, he wanted to, you know, he really wanted to be... Um, reach that ideal of being a complete person, well, completely well-rounded, and having this, uh, you know, the, the, the Latin but version of megalocycle. reaching back to Alexander? Was there a conscious reaching back to Alexander? To, to, to some extent there yeah. was, yes, but, but, but much more in a way, I think, to Aristotle, because Angie was talking mm -hmm. earlier about the megalopsychos, now, in, in that's magna anima, the magnanimous man, the great-souled individual, therefore the person whose sensibilities have been refined and educated all the way around. Not only is he skilled at the martial arts, but he's also accomplished in, in other ways. He can appreciate painting. He likes music. He reads philosophy. He's, he's the Renaissance man. Is there, the, in this Renaissance period, uh, Paul, as well, are we getting a, re a revival of the tragic hero? Is he being remodelled? Well, I was going to get at this through Plutarch and, of course, North's Plutarch and thereby to Shakespeare. So, I mean, one does get back to the ancient Greek tragic hero from the Renaissance through, in particular, Plutarch. And I was also going to pick up on your mention of Alexander, that he certainly was, um, throughout the Middle Ages, rated up there, despite this being a predominantly Christian era in the West. And, of course, he was also a hero in Muslim East. Um, so it was a, an action hero sort of slayer of monsters and a spreader of, in some sense, uh, his uh, culture and what have you. But um, in the Renaissance, for sure, there was a desire to get back to the sort of active virtue that was particularly exemplified in the histories of Livy and in the biographies of the great men that Plutarch wrote. On the other hand, um, others will be much more expert at this than I. Shakespeare's take on Julius Caesar is, I think, relatively unheroic. In other words, it's deflationary. It concentrates on his murder and the motives, the thoughts, the feelings of the people involved in that, and indeed Julius Caesar's own feelings faced with it and Antony's reaction to it. So it's, in a way, a very clever, diffracted notion of um, what being a hero might have been. And, in a sense, Caesar's uh, great conquests, his great 
achievements are set at naught, um, simply because look how he ended. And that, by the way, is a very ancient Greek notion. Whatever you've done in your life, if you end badly, it's all for naught. Uh, that's a rather extreme view, but the ancient Greeks were quite extreme. Are you going to say something, Andrew? I, I was just wondering if, if Henry, Henry V, Shakespeare's Henry V, might blend Roman and, and Christian uh, notions of heroism. Mm. Uh, be, be more of an example there. You know, what seems to happen is the psychologising of heroism. You find out a bit what it's like to be in that situation of, of either being a hero or, or having heroism demanded of you and, and what you think about it. I mean, the, the great thing about Shakespeare is that you are admitted to the private thoughts of the people who are central to the drama in the form of soliloquy and, uh, and uh, dialogue. Uh, in the case of, uh, of Achilles, um, it's, just, it's true that we... we can spectate their thoughts a bit through what they say to, to others, let's say, but uh, in this case we get a much fuller and richer insight into what's going on in their minds, and when that happens, it means that you can get a very nuanced, a much subtler and more complex, ambiguous kind of hero. Did they spin on the hero the tragic, coming, becoming the tragic hero, a tragic, tra tragic hero, a tragic hero, as Paul was saying, did that spin uh, was something that the romantics fed on as their definition, their ideal of what a hero was, and it was they themselves, the artists, who became the hero? Yeah, I mean, what, one rather interesting thing about the romantic conception of the, of the, the poet, the creator, is that um, whereas in, in antiquity, um, you might think, uh, how the heck did that chap down the road there watering his cabbages, Homer, I mean, how did he write that poem? How did he do it? And the answer was, well, he was inspired. I mean, the gods or the muses or something happened, a whisper in his ear, and he, as it were, took dictation from something greater and beyond himself. Whereas the, the romantic hero, I mean, beautifully summed up by Swinburne, you know, I am that which began, out of me the years roll, out of me God and man, is the ultimate source, the ultimate author of these things. The more time spent uh, changing, a uh, revising what you've done, the more you have possession of it, the more the owner of it you are. And the more and so you, you live a life of sensation to prove that you're at the extreme of the situation you're describing. Absolutely. You've got to be in your garret and starving and, you know, the lock of hair has got to be over your brow and so on. And this proves all these are the external signatures of the fact that it's all coming from you and you are there. But let's Origin. keep it focused on heroism. Where does, hero where does the heroism in that... Uh, where does that stop being a sort of a pose, an affectation, a fashion, and continue the track of heroism? Well, in the case of the Romantics, of course, it's rather difficult to distinguish the, the pose and the affectation from the reality. Uh, perhaps the reality is the pose. But certainly the idea of the poet dying in, in his garret for his art uh, is conceived by the poet himself and by his admiring public as an act of heroism. I was going Paul. to say rather aphoristically, it uh, dies on the field Missolonghi. I mean, Byron, for all that he was, uh, in all the ways you've mentioned, a romantic hero, he also was pretty well up on his ancient uh, history. And he chose uh, eventually to die. He apparently had a special helmet and uh, armour made for him, which he thought was something like what perhaps Achilles would have worn. And uh, he turns up, and of course, um, well, I don't know if tragically is the right word, but he comes with money, which is what the Greek revolutionaries needed, rather than his fighting skill. He then catches a fever. It's an extremely unhealthy place in uh, central Greece and dies uh, before he can fight uh, at all. But uh, the very notion of wanting to be there as part of this uh, action, which is a rebellion, of course, for freedom, this seems to me to go back to uh, an ancient Greek notion. And then his mate, Shelley, 
of course, thought Prometheus exactly, was yeah, the, yeah, yeah. was um, the sort of hero to look back to. Man who stole fire from the gods. And, and Shelley was, of course, extremely well-educated. Well he, day, too, sort of yeah. Shelley actually translated Plato's Symposium, which was very daring because it included homosexual as well as heterosexual love. It was not published in his lifetime. His wife wouldn't allow that, but... Um, Shelley saw in Prometheus a fighter for freedom, and there the um, model is, I think, from a play that we now think is not Aeschylus, but the Aeschylean Prometheus Bound, mm -hmm. and he responded with Prometheus Unbound. Before I make the uh, one of the final jumps, it's just, it, we're talking about Garrett, we're talking about the romantics thinking of, them, of themselves as heroes, but yet a lot of them are admiring of a, of a man who could be seen as a traditional hero figure, Napoleon. Uh, whether it's Beethoven or whether it's the uh, young Wordsworth or boom, 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 uh, and so on. Napoleon, apparently, it's, it's Napoleon is the man. So he, that is still consistent, isn't it? The man on the field of battle, the man either figuratively or really leading the charge, and so on. So that's still present, aren't you? Oh, yes, and I think um, um, what Thomas Carlyle... And Wellington, of course, as well. Uh, absolutely, I mean, we, well, but we've got this age at the same time as the Romantic heroes. We have the Napoleonic Wars, which both through fact and, and the folklore throw up three characters who are certainly perceived as heroes for, for many, many years to come, Napoleon, Wellington and Nelson. And uh, Carlyle, who we, who we mentioned earlier, he, he, he excellently combines these notions of the continuation of the martial hero plus the romantic hero. Because in his, his book, which pulls no punches uh, on heroes, hero worship and the heroic in history, in which he, he says that history basically is the, the acts of great men, uh, it is the history of great men, no, no mention of women there. Um, he he make, lists six types of heroes in his six lectures. Uh, three are, are basically religious. We have the hero as, as a god and uh, priest and prophet. We also have hero as poet, hero, and he, Shakespeare and Dante he mentions, hero as man of letters, Dr. Johnson, and hero as king. He doesn't actually say hero as commander. He says hero as king, and Napoleon is the character he picks out. Not surprisingly, the, uh, the British Nelson or, or Wellington, but, but Napoleon. And for Carlyle, what runs throughout all these character types is this notion of, of the strong leader. So he, he somehow combines these these, the romantic hero with the martial hero into the notion of this innovative leader of men. So it would seem that when we're in 19th century Britain, we're back to an imperial idea of heroism, which has moved on not at all from certain imperial ideas of the Greek at that time, their time and the Roman at that time. Is that right? No, I think, there, there, I think there is something, uh, something extra there. The reason why Carlyle chooses Napoleon rather than the merely or purely military heroes, Wellington and Nelson, is because he did some other things too. He liberated the Jews in Europe. He got rid of traditional monarchies. He, <laughs> he stood for, represented a, a movement of the rights of man. And the, so the, the, the more discerning people, Hazlitt from them, for example, <laughs> recognised that as the reason why he was the hero. It wasn't his battles that they admired, it was what he did to change the face of Europe that they liked. I was oh. just going to add that uh, he was, in a sense, politically incorrect in that he included Mahomet amongst his oh, uh, yeah, heroes, and so that wouldn't have gone down terribly well in some quarters. Mind you, you want to come yes, back. Yes, but, but this, this notion of the sort of the, the imperial hero, and I guess Gordon of Khartoum would be the, the classic example there, but it goes hand in hand with an extension of the hero into other fields, which seems to me to go along with imperial expansion. Th it, this is the age when you start to get the notion that a, an explorer can be a hero, um, and later on we, you, you get Scott and Shackleton and so on. So it seems to me that we, we're getting this notion that 
this sort of conquest of the world, which doesn't have to be a conquest of other humans. It can be a conquest of inanimate objects and places too. That seems to be coming into it. And that, that might, well, I suppose it might hark back to Alexander the Great. Is it possible, Anthony Grayling, to tell us, to just briefly say, where Nietzsche came in, in, in bending this at the end of the century and how the idea of heroism and all three of it crashed into the First World War? Mm. Yes, it's very interesting there because, I mean, Angie's dead right that the conquest of nature and of ignorance and so on but became heroic acts and very importantly so. Nietzsche, however, concentrated on the question of, of his conception at any rate of moral heroism, the idea of overcoming the self and becoming a superman. Thought, he thought this was only possible for some. I mean, it wasn't a... A, a demotic uh, possibility this but um, if you could uh, uh, really strive and aspire to be uh, the maker of your own laws then you were to that extent uh, heroic that I don't think is you know it was certainly parlayed in the wrong direction by people who came afterwards people like Houston Stuart Chamberlain and, and the Nazis in the 20th century into thinking that there was a, a, a heroic destiny for a race or a people and that they had to overcome they had to be the ones who collectively were the supermen that's not what Nietzsche meant at all uh, and uh, it's very surprising in, in, in a way that, um, that, that that reading of him should should ever have been admitted because after this, the Second World War when um, Nietzsche's manuscripts, original manuscripts were uh, discovered and looked at and compared with the printed versions of his works early on uh, it was seen that he despised that sort of conception he despised anti-Semitism and the rest this was a purely individual matter the, the individual is moral hero striving to be the very best and the greatest thing that you could be Paul, is there a sense that in the First World War, the uh, let's just take the British perspective, the, uh, and what we know from the poets, they went in still feeling dulce et decorum as pro patria mori, to die for your country is a sweet and uh, honourable thing. I am a hero in the sense of the Romans and Greeks were, and that hit the wall of the First World War. Did heroism, uh, was that its biggest testing point in the history of Western It hit the wall in that, of course, Wilfred Owen was a poor man, a humble man, whereas the officers who explicitly likened their behaviour to those of the great uh, Homeric and other ancient heroes were, of course, well-educated from the top drawer. So it hit the wall in the sense that the slaughter was uh, just uh, unimaginable, and uh, I think it was a French uh, general who said that it was a bunch of uh, donkeys uh, um, who were leading lions i.e. the ordinary soldiers with a lion. So there's a sort of reverse heroism, interestingly. There's a kind of, it does hit the wall, but on the other hand, there's a sort of demoticization of heroism uh, through the First World War. Andrew? Well, there's that, there's that very moving line from Sassoon, isn't there, when he talks about the, the officers cosily back at base camps uh, speeding glum heroes on the line to death. They, they still are heroes, yes. but they're not too happy about it because they've seen the what heroism involves. Yes, her heroism has become something that doesn't involve glory any longer. And it was, it was uh, once you know, at central, central to heroism that that would be the, the achievement of glory. Well, but here is inglorious heroism. Well, you've still got the Victoria Cross, and I mean, you've still got great admiration for... For well, certain acts of heroism. And, and, and the motivation today. now. Oh, as well. Yeah. I mean, the, heroic deeds are recognised today. Absolutely. The old sense is still held, even though it hit the wall. True, yes. We have to go. Sorry. <laughs> Next week we're talking about the total history of zero. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4.